Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about Victoria's trip to Istanbul, WD Diamonds, and the history of sustainability in the watch industry. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York. How's it going, Rob? I'm okay, hanging in. It's getting a little cold. Yeah, it might be the best we can ask for these days. Um, it's the day after Halloween. Did you guys... Go trick-or-treating? Yeah, but a little a little late. So um, it's very unique trick-or-treating in New York because you go to people's apartments and you go <laughs> right. to like businesses, right? Local deli will, will give you candy. And uh, so we did a little of that. Do you just like stay in your building or do you go to neighboring buildings? Well, my, my building's actually relatively small. But yes, the neighbors had some. And then you go to, you could probably just like go around a block and you'd get like more than enough candy because all the businesses and, you know, the, your your neighbors and you'll be okay. In LA, you drive probably, right? You drive to everywhere? You... No, no, not at all. Like my neighborhood, we actually escaped my neighborhood this year, but normally it's like a mob scene. And it's one of those neighborhoods and I'll contrast it to where we went last night, which is to my mom's neighborhood, which is filled with, she lives in a little enclave of Granada Hills, which is itself a city, but a small little suburban part of Los Angeles in the Valley. And uh, the enclave is called Balboa Highlands. And it's all these Eichler homes, which I don't know, do you know what an Eichler is? No. It's the uh, architect, um, Joseph Eichler. He was a mid-century California architect, kind of a disciple of Frank Lloyd Wright and built these homes, mostly in Northern California, the biggest pocket of them, they're called Eichler homes or in California. They had kind of contractors who built according to his specifications. And then a sort of mid-sized pocket in Orange County. And then the smallest pocket is in this little enclave that my mom lives in, Balboa Highlands. I grew up in an Eichler. It's a really remarkable mid-century home. It's It was all designed to bring light in. So most of the homes, in fact, all of them, I think, have atriums and you walk in and it's just all glass. Like the homes are essentially glass walls and they have a lot of indoor out outdoor mix it you know my parents bought it in 1986 for a song it was nothing and since then they've really grown as mid-century design has grown and so this little enclave had a bunch of homes that signed on and created a flyer for trick-or-treating so it was fun because we got to kind of peek inside all these Eichlers there's just a few different styles of home but you got to walk in and see people's atriums and it was wonderful a lot of people just left things on their doorstep like you kind of walk the steps to get into the home and they would just be these little individual treat bags and I thought what a contrast to my neighborhood. I'm only 15 minutes away, but if you left a bunch of treats out on our doorstep, they'd be gone in about one second. You know, just one teenage group would come along and I think every bag would be gone versus the honor system, which exists in my mom's neighborhood. So you don't have to drive, but it depends on the kind of hood you're in, whether or not you can leave things on the doorstep or if you have to actually serve them one by one. So anyway, that was a long saying way of saying we had a a nice Halloween too. (laughs) Sure you did. What'd your son dress up as? Darth Nico. He was Darth Vader. Oh, that's cute. What about Mikey? He was a evil clown. Hmm. He had cool claws. The older you get, the the more comfortable. I, I think the scarier you want to be, at least as as right. most boys get. Yeah, but it's fun. I mean, I don't mind being scared on Halloween. It's it's what happens. So so you just came back, I guess, from Turkey. How many days ago? Yeah, I got back like a little over ten days ago. Even though it was not technically a jewelry trip, I took vacation days to go. I was a guest of the Peninsula Hotel, which is a remarkable, I guess, chain you'd call it, but it's still owned by this the controlling 
growing family. It's a Hong Kong based company. I believe they own 12 properties now around the world. They just opened up a London hotel in this peninsula in Istanbul on the banks of the Bosphorus opened up in February. And it's just a remarkable property. It's the former customs hall that cruise passengers used when they came through Istanbul, through the Bosphorus. And it's right across from the old city. Galata Bridge connects the old city to Karakoy, also on the European side of Istanbul. And so it's easy to cross. And from my bedroom window, from the hotel window, I could see the minarets of the Blue Mosque and Topkapi Palace, Hagia Sophia in the distance. It was just, to me, the most mesmerizing, bewitching view in all of the world. There's just nothing more historic or profound, really, than being on the Bosporus looking out over this incredible skyline. Have you have you been to Istanbul? Uh, yes, once. For a jewelry show? Yeah. I, I have to say, I thought the food was, I knew it would be good food. It was much better than I expected. Cab drivers were a little shady. Those were my, <laughs> those are my recollections of Istanbul. You know what? It's funny you say that because literally the moment I landed, I checked into my room. It was late. It was like 9 p.m. on a Monday. And I dashed off into a taxi to go get a Turkish scrub at the one of the oldest Turkish bathhouses in the city called Chemberlitash. And I had that same experience with the taxi drivers. They were a little shady. Yeah, they were they were pulling stuff. A little shady. Yeah, they want to negotiate with you even through the Uber app, which is funny because there is Uber and you do call the taxis through Uber. But the food a- agreed. I had a Turkish breakfast that like haunts me every morning because I, I can't seem to have it here. And some of the most delicious combination of flavors I've ever, ever experienced. That's great. Yeah, so I mean... You know, most people in our industry know Turkey, or at least are familiar with its industry. There's a lot of wonderful designers that are based in Istanbul. There's a big industry out of Istanbul, a lot of it manufacturing gold chains in the model of the Italian market, a lot of gold production there. Much of the work still done at the Grand Bazaar, which I've heard described as the oldest mall in the world. You know, this incredible bazaar of shops and stalls. And certainly I did go back to the Grand Bazaar. I'd been to Turkey, by the way, or just Istanbul twice for the Turkish jewelry show back in like two. 2005 and maybe 2007. And on my last visit to Istanbul in 2007, I'd spent some time and I was there with Savan Bichakchi, who is, of course, maybe the country's most, you know, best known jeweler, a real master craftsman, started working around the Grand Bazaar maybe 35 years ago and has really created a real following and, and a real kind of cult around his incredible, incredible craftsmanship. I did manage to squeeze some time in to see him. And I also saw Ada Bergson, another jeweler that sells quite a bit here in the States. She's a, got a lovely, beautiful salon in this neighborhood called Nishantish. That's kind of like the Beverly Hills of Istanbul. And so I, I didn't have much time because I was I was a professional tourist that week. I really had a lot of eating and touring to do. So no complaints. But I did, you know, run out to see Sivan, who has this uh, five-story atelier just steps away from the Grand Bazaar and Ada. And I was just reminded of how remarkable that city is, how remarkable its heritage is, the craftsmanship, you know, all, all the work is still done there at the Grand Bazaar. I also managed to sort of walk through the bazaar and find a wonderful vintage watch shop selling some of the grooviest, coolest gold wristwatches, all kind of 70s, 80s models that I just desperately wanted to buy. I did not. So 
it just reminded me what a wonderful city Istanbul is for jewelers and for watch lovers as well, but especially for jewelers, because not only is there a lot of vintage and antique there, there's just this generation of jewelers that are reinventing Turkish craftsmanship for a new generation, Ada being one of them, Savan, of course, and then some other jewelers that I'm not as familiar with. I've never met them, but I've seen their pieces on Instagram, one called Susian Lika Bihar, I believe. And then another uh, jeweler that many people know, she's a longtime JCK exhibitor, Lika Behar, comes from Istanbul, has her roots in that heritage of the Anatolian civilization. So just reminded me that if you love jewelry and you love the history of jewelry and and a really unique take on it that Istanbul has to be on your list. It's a remarkable place to see in as a city. It's so cosmopolitan and there's such good food and just the history. You can't be, you can't beat it. So it was a real delight. And I am very grateful for that experience. And um, it was a yeah. Turkish delight. Turkish delight. I, I brought back boxes and boxes and you go to the spice bazaar and you just, you can't help it. You want to eat all the nougat and all the powdered sugar sweets. And yeah, I'm, like my whole house is just stuffed with sweets. Well, so while I I think this may have this news may have taken place right before I left, but I saw something rather that pretty much surprised me. I had not been paying attention. WD Diamonds declared bankruptcy. Yes, WD lab-grown diamonds were, you know, there was kind of a first wave of lab-grown companies, which is Genesis Sio, and then there was a second wave, and WD was one of the first companies in the second wave, and they were definitely one of the first companies to mass-produce lab-grown diamonds. They had a very good reputation, certainly compared to some other people in the business, and they were very much ahead of the curve. And in 2019, it was purchased by Huron Capital for, I, I probably wouldn't print this, but I can say it. Uh, I've heard $100 million. And I, you know, that's not a confirmed figure, but it was just one of those situations where I think the company was not particularly managed well. The hedge fund was not a company that really knew the business. And I had been expecting it because the signs were all there as far as it needing money. There was a lawsuit. Uh, the, the Plum Club had sued them over, I think it was $100,000. Now, if you can't raise that much, you know, $100,000 is shouldn't be that huge an amount that a company can't even pay that. They weren't at the JCK show. So they were a very high profile company. They started their own brand, Latitude. But in the end, I mean, it, it's a huge loss. And it's not even kind of a typical chapter 11 where you try to reorganize. It's just a liquidation. They're just going out. Liabilities were $44.5 million. Wow. You know, that's a, it takes a lot of work to, to owe that much money. And, um, the main lender, Treeline, I think is owed $30 million. So it's a big loss. And, and uh, uh, for a long time, people have expected that there's going to be some consolidation in the lab-grown business. And we are starting to see it. And I think if WD had a particular issue, I mean, I think there was two issues. There was, first of all, the price of lab-grown diamonds keeps going down and down, Yeah. number one. And number two is that they produced in the United States. And the business is definitely 
moving to lower cost centers in India and China, and it's very hard for them to compete. I think that was a problem for them. And because they were one of the first people in the business and because they had a lot of patents on their technology, they ended up suing a lot of companies and that turned out to be unproductive. And I wouldn't say it's necessarily a sign of weakness in the lab-grown business, but it's a, it's definitely a sign that it's contracting after years of, of rapid expansion and rapid increases in production. It's Really interesting. Um, something caught my eye in your story, which is you, you talked about them going after other lab-grown companies, you know, litigation and so on. And one of those companies that I guess ultimately prevailed was Phoenix Diamonds, F-E-N-I-X, an Indian producer. It caught my eye because Phoenix Diamonds supplies Breitling, the you know the Swiss watchmaker that's committed to using only traceable, sourceable materials for its watches, including lab-grown diamonds from Phoenix. What do you know about Phoenix and, and how did they ultimately prevail in their suit that was brought by WD? Well, the original suit was against Phoenix and Mahendra Brothers. And I guess there is some kind of corporate separation between Mahendra Brothers, which is a big De Beers site holder, and, and Phoenix. So in the end, it was just against Phoenix. But, you know, most people, when you sue them, they, they say, because that's the easiest thing. And, and Phoenix just decided to fight it. And they they ended up prevailing. And I, I don't think I'm necessarily astute enough to understand who was right on the merits. But I think you look at De Beers also went after a company 2A in Singapore over lab grown patents, and it also lost. It also wasn't able to defend its patents. So in that sense, I think that because the lab-grown technology can vary, right, and people are, are making all these variations of it, it's kind of hard to say that this person stole from me because there's a lot of people who say they originated the technology. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure some of them are, are correct, but a lot of people lay claim for the original technology or for or certain variations of the technology in this WD suit. One of the things was post-growth treatment that they were going after. So for a while, any diamonds that were that had a post-growth treatment, people in the market didn't want to buy them because they were worried that they would get sued by WD. But for whatever reason, it's not easy to bring these lawsuits against uh, for these lab grown patents. Wow. So yeah, I guess a, a reckoning in the lab grown market. Well, we'll see what comes next, especially what happens this holiday and what, what that might mean, what implications there might be for the rest of the market come 2024. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural untreated diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond chairs with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services. One thing from my sphere I wanted to cover, because it's, it's a story I wrote for the New York Times, it should be publishing the same day that people are listening or this podcast is out, which is November 8th. I did a piece for the New York Times, uh, their watch section 
every November runs a has a sustainability theme. And every year it seems like a fresh struggle because there are a lot of very shallow and superficial sustainability sort of news releases that go out from the watch world. Things like, you know, different kinds of packaging and new straps that are vegan leather or something. But honestly, all that's been done. It's really hard to kind of come up with a story out of the Swiss watch world or the luxury watch world that feels meaningful when it comes to sustainability. So I struggled as I do almost every year with what to say. And I pitched a story to my editor about the history of sustainability in the watch world, which felt at least like something I could track down through historical sources. In the reporting for that, I did talk to a partner at Deloitte Switzerland, which every year, or at least for, for several years, I guess for around a decade, has produced an annual report on the Swiss watch industry covering all kinds of topics. And when I spoke to Corinne Zaghetti, one of the partners who oversaw this report, she talked about how six years ago in 2017, when she canvassed respondents, mostly brand executives in Switzerland, and asked them about the topics that really mattered, sustainability didn't even really warrant a mention. You know, they were really concerned about the strength of the Swiss franc. They were concerned about Swiss made and the sort of particularities of that label and what that meant for watchmakers who were manufacturing manufacturing in China and promoting their goods as Swiss made. The other smartwatches were, of course, a big conversation in 2017, just two years after Apple introduced its Apple Watch. Sustainability wasn't even up there. And now it is really a pretty dramatic shift. A lot of what she noted and what other people have noted is that you know, a lot of companies now have sustainability officers, have sustainability departments. It's not just something under the marketing department or uh, you know, sort of a token title that's given to somebody who actually wears a lot of other hats and sustainability is just a marginal aspect of what they do. A lot of brands, I think of a lot of the Richemont brands and certainly Breitling have full-fledged officers who are there to look after their company's sustainability. And so when I looked through this, try to do this history, it was really interesting. There weren't that many models that I could come up with because I, I pitched the story as sustainability through the lens of specific timepieces that might track the way the trade had approached this topic, how it become more sustainable. There weren't that many watches over the last, well, really 50 years. I started with 1973, the Mondain Group. Mondain is a, well, it's a fairly excessively priced watch brand. They are famous for their Swiss railway watches, which really kind of have this very Swiss, I believe, Helvetica on the dial, kind of a very Swiss, clean aesthetic. But their ownership, it's family-owned Bernheim company, uh, or I should say the Bernheims, who I think it was started by Erwin Bernheim early on, and then his sons co-run it now, their chairs of the board and so on. And um, they started early on in 1973 with one of the first, or what they claim was the first analog solar-powered wristwatch. And so more of those types of products started coming out in the 70s. A lot of them, though, funny enough, and what I learned in the research, weren't really actually the, the impetus for creating them wasn't sustainability or you know renewable energy. It was really they wanted to offer people an opportunity to have timepieces that didn't depend on quartz batteries because at the time quartz was new you know a lot of quartz batteries ran out quickly so there was a convenience factor that was driving this innovation in the solar space so early on you know those were kind of the first sustainable watches mundane came out with a, a piece in 93 that actually featured the recycling logo on its case back it was really a, an effort at a more eco-conscious product where it was uh the case was made from recycled scrap metal brass and so on and it was interesting because honestly in 93 Three, there just wasn't a lot of that talk around. And, you know, the idea of recycling to the Swiss, even as early as 
10, 15 years ago, it was anathema. You know, you couldn't have a luxury product that had recycled parts. Luxury was about being shiny and new and prestigious. And so we've certainly seen that shift. And part of it became very clear just a couple of years ago when Panerai, I believe in 2021, this was one of the other watches on my list, um, introduced a a submersible lab ID model that was almost 97%, I guess, almost 100% recycled parts, including recycled superluminova, you know, certainly recycled steel and all the other aspects of the case. And it was interesting to kind of point out the details of these introductions over the years that really signaled a shift. One of the biggest ones, and I think many people in the industry regard Chopard as a leader in the space, because in 2014, Chopard introduced the first watch made entirely in ferromine gold. So we've written quite a bit and you've explored fair mind as you know as a ethically produced material so a lot of people still you know in the kind of ngo space and when people are being critical of the watch industry they'll look at things like you know the introduction of some sort of recyclable packaging or eco leather straps and they'll kind of scoff because the real bugaboo for people who care about sustainability is sourcing and is the origin of your materials particularly the precious materials particularly gold and so you know, you can make all the to-do about your cool straps, but if you're not paying attention to where your gold comes from, then you're missing a really big part of that conversation, of the responsible sourcing conversation. And so Sopard addressed this really early on, and it was really interesting. I talked to the co-president of Chopard, Carl Friedrich Schäufele, who manages the watch business. You know, together with his sister, Caroline, she manages the jewelry business. And it was interesting to hear how they got turned on to Fairmind and what it was that drew them to talk about this in the first place. It turns out they were putting out a collection in 2010 that they had created called Animal World. And it was a lot of like bejeweled tigers and bears and inspired by wildlife. And they, back around 2010, when they were getting ready to promote it, wanted to partner with WWF, the World Wildlife Conservation Organization. And they went to talk to a WWF exec in Geneva. And he's like, well, this looks great. Yes, we'd, we'd love to partner, but what are you doing about sustainability? Mind you, this was 13 years ago. And the way Mr. Schäufele told it, he's, he and his sister looked at each other and I said, yeah, what what are we doing? And that's what set them on this path. And now, you know, since 2018, all the gold they use is what they call ethical gold. So a portion of it is fair mine gold and a portion of it is gold that is accredited by the Swiss Better Gold Association, which is an organization founded in 2013 that has membership, including a few big, big watch brands, but not exclusively watch brands, Audemars Piguet, Cartier, Breitlinger members. And they work with mines to better compensate those mines and those miners for more responsibly produced gold. And they have standards. I don't know how they differ from Fairmind, but I believe their premium is a little less than Fairmind. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. And I, I think they get from a wider variety of sources than, than Fairmind. Yeah. So it, it was really interesting to kind of report this story in general about the, these incremental shifts and changes and the evolution of the Swiss industries, I guess how it grapples with sustainability. And I won't go through the whole list, but I will cite the very last watch that appeared and it just got introduced right as I was leaving for Istanbul called The Circular Sea by a brand called ID Geneve. ID Geneve came out in 2020 with its first model, the 
the circular one. Um, and it really was one of the, the only brands really, really focused on circularity, on reusing, reducing, recycling, the very ethos of the environmental movement in a watch. So the idea, and, and one of the interesting things I learned was that Panerai model that came out in 2021 that featured all these different recycled materials. One of the other groundbreaking aspects of it was that Panerai basically named all its suppliers, it was an open source approach, which is very unusual for Switzerland. The Swiss are incredibly guarded about their suppliers and how they get the materials. But in this particular watch, Panerai said, you know, we want other people to start using these kinds of recycled materials. And ID Genève, as a matter of fact, reached out and inquired and got the name of the Superluminova supplier that provided Breitling with its recycled Superluminova, the, the luminous material that appears on a lot of watches, and use them. And so that open source approach kind of worked. And so that was interesting. And, and in any case, so ID Genève just came out with this circular C. It features material that is supposedly, it was described to me by one of the co-founders of ID Genève as alien material because it regenerates. It's a type of repurposed wind turbine waste. It's a company in Switzerland called Comp Air. The idea is that parts of the watch are made in this and if it gets damaged you take it to a service center they're able to take out that material heat it and in a minute it reconstitutes and becomes like new again so the whole idea is let's just reuse what we already have rather than creating new or, or creating a demand for new material which i love i mean you know the watch world is obviously tiny and watches are quite literally tiny but because people spend a lot of money on them because they're status objects they end up becoming the way the ID Genev co-founder described it was a vitrine for other companies. So imagine as a sporting goods supplier, if you make skis or if you make boats or, and this material is regenerative and you see it in a watch and you think, wait a minute, that might be a great way for me to start producing my other goods. Then, then it slowly, slowly starts to make a difference. Before we part ways, I wanted to touch on something you just published today, which is really big news from a company that a lot of us in the watch space will know as Watchbox which is a, a pre-owned online dealer owned by Govberg in Pennsylvania. And they have some international lounges where they really have made a pretty smart business around the pre-owned category. What what did they announce? So they're rebranding themselves to the 1916 company. And they're also joining Govberg, which they already had a connection to. Hyde Park Jewelers, which is a well-regarded independent uh, based out of Colorado. And Radcliffe Jewelers, which is based out of Maryland. And they're all joining together to form this new watch seller. And they said it's in response to the growing strength of these watch selling brands like Watches of Switzerland and Bucherer, which is now owned by Rolex. But it's basically an attempt to take these high-end independents and join them together with this pre-owned watch seller. And they're going to be part of the Rolex certified pre-owned program. And basically form a rival to Watches of Switzerland and some of these other brands that are now starting to open up stores. And it's interesting because Watches of Switzerland, one of the ways it has grown is by buying independence. Mm. Oh, so they've bought some Ben Bridge stores to form this chain. And I, th I think this is kind of the model of, of independence, a particularly successful high-end independent, a lot of which are very involved with Rolex and these high-end brands kind of getting together and forming their own chain and uh, trying to to be an alternative to some of these big brands. And yeah, it's, a, it's certainly an interesting model. And I think it's probably good for the jewelry business and 
that the 1916 company, which is the new watch box, will actually start selling jewelry online. And some of these other watch retailers will start selling more certified pre-owned and they'll also start selling jewelry. So it's definitely interesting and it shows the consolidation in the jewelry business, but it's an interesting model. And I, I would not be surprised if other high-end independents either think about going a similar route or join up with some of these big brands out there because, you know, it's getting tougher for smaller companies, unfortunately. I mean, I love independent jewelers. I believe in independent jewelers. And I think certainly even Rolex knows how important independent jewelers are to its business and to the industry in, in general, but it can be tough. And I think they want to scale. It's so interesting. Do you know how how they settled on these two independence Radcliffe and Hyde Park and like I know Danny Govberg I mean obviously was instrumental why those two Radcliffe the gentleman who is the president I guess used to work for Govberg or has been a business partner with Govberg so there was a pre-existing relationship there and Hyde Park was for sale so they picked that up Hmm. it is interesting and you know you, you mentioned the acquisition strategy of like a watches of Switzerland or Bucher and of course Betteridge was acquired by watches of Switzerland. We know smaller retailers out West, Bucher's in their, in, in their sites. And, you know, Bucher, of course, was itself, I guess, acquired. I'm not sure if that's the exact term by Rolex. And it does make you wonder, and you said Radcliffe and Hyde Park, are they both Rolex dealers? I believe so, yeah. Well, so then, and Govberg is, so you almost get a sense of, so Rolex, did they have to have their blessing in this? It seems like they might have needed it, but of course, we'll never for sure know. Well, they said that the the 1916 company, which is this new entity, will be selling Rolex certified pre-owned. So I, I assume there was some kind of discussion ahead of time. And one of the things they mentioned was that they did want to become important to their suppliers because for a lot of jewelers who are very into Rolex, I mean, it's it's extremely important to keep them happy, right? They're the basis of their business. I mean, they're such a huge, huge company. So I assume that they discussed it and... I guess, I don't know if Rolex can actually give their blessing, but they didn't uh, say they hated it. Let's put it that way. Okay. Wow. Really interesting news. I, I saw that press release, you know, under embargo and was not expecting that. Well, thanks, Rob. Always a great chat to catch up with you. I'll be in New York for New York City Jewelry Week. Can't wait to see you and, and see everybody then. Yes. I look forward to seeing you. It's in mid-November. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Riley McCaskill. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.